With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning and welcome to Conscious Shift and I am your co-host Mary Adams and I am here with Julianne Turner, co-host and executive producer of Conscious Shift. Hey Julianne, how you doing this week? Oh Mary, it is just a phenomenal week, a phenomenal day and a phenomenal show for everyone today on Conscious Shift. We have got some amazing guests kicking off with Seth Godin the multiple New York Times bestselling author, and with his new book, Lynchpin, he is right in our realm, Mary, talking about creativity and about our work and our lives as art. Isn't that a phenomenal message to share and and for Seth to be on our show today? It really is, and we're so honored to have Seth and all of our guests today. We also have Ashita Gupta, from How to Be Fearless in a Fearful World, who is the co-founder of FearlessStories.com. And we're going to be taking your live calls today at noon Central Standard Time, coming up in one hour, and let give you the opportunity to share your fearless stories with us. Well, Ishita has just done an amazing job with FearlessStories.com, and she has the online magazine, Fearless Magazine, dedicated to stories of overcoming fear. Now, I love the way that she's positioned this, Mary, because she uses the word fear, and it is fear.less. And we all want to be fear.less, don't we? Well, we do. And today is a powerful opportunity because when we share our stories, we're able to take that next step in our bravery. And a lot of times it really frees us up. And so we're giving everyone that opportunity today. I'm excited and I can't wait to hear our call-ins today. Me too, Mary. I'm excited about that. And then finally, we've got a, a, a wonderful global announcement from Humanities Team. So can't wait to share that with all of you. And we're going to start right now and invite Seth Godin in. We are so pleased to welcome to Conscious Shift, Seth Godin. He is a global thought leader, a philosopher, and a futurist who has much to tell us about the nature of the global market space and the nature of how we work and collaborate and co-create across the globe. Now, most of you know that Seth 
Godin writes the number one business and marketing blog in the world, and he is the author of so many best-selling business books and marketing books of the last decade. His latest, Lynchpin, just made the New York Times bestseller list between within its first week of publication, and Seth has also launched Squidoo.com, which is a place where people from across the globe share their views of the world in short articles or lenses, which is so appropriate because Seth has shifted our lenses in how we perceive and operate in this global networked market space. Seth, welcome to Conscious Shift on Co-Creator Network. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We are so pleased to talk with you today, uh, especially in light of your new book, Lynchpin, which is just making such a great impact in how we think about our work. And one of the things that you talk about in Lynchpin is, is the concept of a Lynchpin itself within our work and our workplaces that we can be as as human beings, as contributors, just as remarkable as you described a purple cow being as a product in the marketplace. In other words, some someone can be in their own workspace just as remarkable and stand out and someone that people go, wow, how indispensable and remarkable that person is. Tell us a bit about how you came up with this concept uh, and why it's so important for us now. Well, I think the reason it's important is that the economy isn't the economy we grew up with. We grew up with a bargain, and the bargain was if you do what you're told and fit in, then you will be taken care of. You will be taken care of by being told what to do, by being protected, by being promoted, by giving a pension, and by being safe. And that worked for about 100 years. And the reason it worked is because factories needed workers. But that has shifted in a really dramatic way. And the way it's shifted is that factories have discovered that they can outsource stuff much cheaper than they can hire you to do it. And they've discovered that if they can write down all the instructions, they'll have absolutely no trouble finding someone to do it cheaper than you can. So the only great work that's left is work without a map, work we do because we want to, because we see an outcome, because we have something to contribute. And unfortunately, school didn't teach us how to do this work, so we have to teach ourselves. That's so true. And one of the, one of the most remarkable things I, I think about, the way that you portray work in Lynchpin, is that our work is really seen as art. Can you, can you describe what you mean by that? Well, it's easy to think that art is just a painting, but of course a play is art, and so is um, a sculpture, and so is a symphony, but so is the way that receptionist treats you when you walk into the office in a bad mood and suddenly you're in a good mood, and so is the way the hairdresser treats you uh, when you get way more for $100 than a shorter head of hair, and so is the attitude of the flight attendant when you didn't pay for a good attitude, you just paid for a flight to Cleveland. And in fact, if we go down the list of uh, designers and connectors and leaders and teachers, what we really want from them is a generous gift of personal connection, not so much the thing we paid for. Because if all we want is the thing we paid for, we could get it cheaper at Walmart. We could buy a barrel of pickles for $3. 
But that's not what we're paying for. We're paying for the art of humanity, of connection, and of change. And that's actually wonderful news, I would think, for all of us in our work, because then our work really becomes meaningful and connective and co-creative. And I think that what you're pointing out, Seth, is so important because we have so narrowly defined the concepts of genius and creativity that it's time to renew the fact that we all have that creative spark and that genius, or, or as you refer to it in, in the Greek term in the book, the, the daimon, within, within each of us. And, and I think it's time that we open that up and realize that there is something unique that each of us has to contribute. What do you think? Well, I sure hope so. I mean, it used to be that's all we did as human beings. Uh, we didn't leave our village and go to work for the factory and do what we were told. So it's easy to accept the fact that this is the natural way of things, but it's not. The natural way of things is to dig deep inside yourself and to be part of a community and to connect and to lead. Uh, all I'm trying to do is uh, wake people up to the fact that they don't have to buy what's been sold to them all these years and that, in fact, there's a bigger opportunity out there. Yes, and I think it would inspire us. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, piece in your work that says, your real work, then, what you might be paid for, and what is certainly your passion, is simple, the work. The work is feeding and amplifying and glorifying the daimon, your genius. Your work is to create art that changes things in such a way that you're truly indispensable. The work is about making a difference. Now, to me, that would resonate with people so much more as what we do each day, to wake up each day and think that we're, we're indispensable because we're providing a unique genius and because we're contributing value in a way that no one else can. So, um, again, I think this is such good news for us, even though... It's, it's amazing, as you really explore in the book, this kind of shift, this kind of change is actually can be very daunting to people, correct? Oh, it's really frightening. Uh, you know, the reason that everyone doesn't do this is because it's hard. And the reason it's hard is not because you're not strong enough. You know, no one's asking you to pick up a shovel and dig a ditch or unplug a toilet. The reason it's hard is because in addition to the genius in your head, there's a lizard in your head the lizard brain, the prehistoric part near the brain stem that's associated with the amygdala. It's the actual physical part of your brain that is responsible for uh, survival and revenge and anger and reproduction and uh, getting yourself through the jungle without being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And that lizard brain really helped us out for a long time. And the problem is it doesn't work anymore. It's not useful anymore. It doesn't help anymore. And the reason is that this, the very thing that kept you from being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, that kept you from getting thrown out of the village, was this desire to fit in. And so we trained ourselves to fit in. And the problem is our economy today punishes those people relentlessly. And the only people it rewards are the people who stand out. So that voice in the back of your head, which Steve Pressfield calls the resistance, that's the voice that says, don't public speaking. That's the voice that says, maybe they're going to laugh at me. That's the voice that says, I'll get in trouble. And we need to figure out when that voice shows up 
what to do about it. And what we need to do about it is cajole it or seduce it or ignore it or do something that permits us to ship great work. Yes, and that and let's let's touch on that idea of shipping uh, shipping great work, Seth. It's it's a, a wonderful concept that you explore in detail in the book, which involves completion of a project. And you have a remarkable description of your process for that. Can you describe how you move past the lizard brain and really move into just focusing on the work itself and getting it to a point where you can ship it? Not that it's fully complete, but that you can ship it and share it. Well, you know, if I could tell you how to do it, I'd be giving you a map. And uh, (laughs) maps don't work because then it's not art anymore. Then you're just following instructions. And so my argument is I can't tell you how to do it. I can just give it a name, and I can tell you it's important. I can sell you on how essential it is. That the only, you know, I've been studying successful people for a really long time. And the only thing they have in common is not where they were born or who their parents were or where they went to school. The only thing they have in common is they ship. And that's the, the secret. The secret is don't ask someone for instructions. Don't read the dummies book. Just figure out what you're going to do that's going to get you made fun of, what you're going to do that's going to offend your critics, what you're going to do that's going to make a difference, what you're going to do that matters, and do it, and do it relentlessly until it's done. And then share it with the world. Right. Ship often. And the cool thing is it's cheaper now to ship than ever before. You can post a blog post every day. You can post a tweet every five minutes. You can post your entire photography collection online. You can write a book and publish it through Lulu or write a symphony and post it. There's nobody who can tell you you have to stop. Yes, there are so many different tools, really, to share with the world. And so overcoming the lizard brain may be the biggest obstacle, that undoubtedly, that we have uh, to ship and to share. And, and really what you're highlighting then, Seth, is that Really, to be iconoclastic is the way to stand out, to be different, to be, uh, if you will, disruptive, because then people will take notice and pay attention. Because you've said, and one of your, one of your favorite, uh, one of my favorite quotes in your book is one of the shortest, and that is, average is over. Well, the thing about average is everyone is average. That's what makes it average, right? But... Uh, Everybody is cheaper than you, and everybody is more compliant than you. So if you want me to go with average, I will, but that means you just lost. That's true. And, you know, this new market space, this global market space, this networked market space, as you said, there are no longer any great jobs where someone will tell you what to do. So we truly need to shift into this creative navigational mindset. Um, You use lenses with Squidoo. I think lenses are a wonderful metaphor. One of the things that I talk about in my work on the creative process is that we do view the world through different lenses. And most often we view the world through the lens of what is, what we already know, what already exists, when there's a much greater lens of what can be which is the realm of imagination into the uncharted territory, as you've said. And so we really need to be able to shift 
from the knowledge only kind of mindset we've had for so long into the imagination mindset to be able to do something new and different and creative. And this is not only for ourselves, but in concert with others, in in collaboration and co-creation. And that's another area that you've had a lot to say about, Seth, in terms of how we collaborate and, and, and co-create across the globe, especially in your book, Tribes. Can you talk a bit about how fundamentally our connections, our personal connections, our collaborative connections across the globe have changed as well? Well, I guess I want to start with the controversial thought, which is that there's a real danger to reliance on co-creation, which is that if enough people are part of the team, it's average. That if enough people take responsibility, then no one is taking responsibility. That it's very seductive to, you know, say I'm part of the group. I just got a a thing in the mail from a a cool company called Quirky that uh, allows people to collaborate uh, who never meet uh, on creating items that need to be built. And I think probably 250 people worked on this product. And it's neat, but it's not worth crossing the street for. And that's because they average it out, they roughed off, they smoothed off the rough edges. And so part of what I'm pushing for is the desire to stand up and say, I did this, not we, but I did this. And once you're willing to do that, and I, I think Steve Jobs is a fine example, then what you find is that there are lots and lots of people in the world who are ready to help you, who are ready to connect with you, who are ready to follow you, who are ready to amplify your vision and get it out the door. But the group will never decide to ship on its own, ever. Sooner or later, one person has to stand up and say, this is the deadline, it's out of here, bye. Right, and you advocate that, uh, that, that one person needs to, even in a group, even in a, in a wise group, uh, a smart group, uh, that's, that one person needs to be the leader, the, the decider, if you will, and that it's so important. And one of the things that I th- found was remarkable about your work is that you truly set a deadline right up front. That's part of your process, as you give us as an example. As you said, there's no map, but you do give us a wonderful example of how you ship, and you set a deadline first and then invite people in once you've already downloaded your ideas, Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that this idea, the way you ship on time and on budget is pretty simple. You establish a time, a date, and you establish a budget. And you keep going until you run out of money or you run out of time. Whichever comes first, you ship. And there's not a discussion. You just do it. And the first time you do it, you're going to be embarrassed because you didn't plan properly and you shipped something too early or when you weren't finished and you ran out of money. And then the second time it won't happen because you realize you're serious. That there's no exceptions, that there's no excuses. And if you think about television, as much as I don't like television, a show like Saturday Night Live is on on Saturday night, and it's live. And never once, never once, have they come on on Saturday night and said, you know, we don't have the episode ready. It'll be ready in 20 minutes. Just hold on. We, we had a really tough week. Someone had the flu. There was a power blackout. No, Saturday night at 11.30, it's on. And that's part of what makes it work is that there's no discussion. When they run out of time and they run out of money, they ship. Yes, and you have some, I think, some wonderful thoughts about how people can really motivate themselves just to move on through those temptations to delay. One is that 
you talk about accepting everything as a draft. I think that's brilliant, Seth, because we are so, you know, we're so used to being perfectionists, and yet we live in a world in process. Why not share things in process, correct? And and then let let those ideas percolate, elaborate. Yes, there can be further iterations, but at least we've shipped and we've shared. And the second thing is, that we distract ourselves only with our own work. I think that is a key discipline. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, the, the lizard brain wants me to do all sorts of things that are socially acceptable, um, like use Twitter. That If I use Twitter, I would never stop using Twitter. I would use it. My ADD is bad enough that I'd have to go see if anyone in the last 90 seconds told me something that I needed to see. Uh, if you think about the people who come to work in the morning and between answering their email and responding to their voicemail and answering the memo from their boss, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon before they start to do their work. Uh, those people think they're being good employees. They think they're they're working hard. In fact, all they're doing is reacting to other people's agendas. And uh, some of the most successful people I know uh, only have meetings after 3 p.m only answer their email once a day. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what rule you follow. What matters is that you decide that your work, the work, is worth doing. And if it's not, then you should sign up to be a compliant cog in somebody else's system and get the best job you can. And, you know, more power to you, good luck. But if you want to make a dent in the universe, you're going to have to understand that you have to be relentless in focusing and shipping that you can't use the focus as a chance to hide. You can't say, well, I can't talk to anyone because I'm doing my work, and then we never hear from you. I'm saying it's both, shipping and focus on doing the work. Yes, and you describe distracting yourself only with the work, and I think that may terrify us more than anything else, Seth, which is allowing yourself to sit with the blank page, with the time, with the silence, and not run off to check the email or or, or to go on Twitter or to, to turn on, you know, turn on the news or whatever, but to sit and be with the work. I think that's a remarkable discipline. What kinds of thoughts and feelings come up for you when you're in that space and and just sitting with it? Well, I mean, you know, one of my heroes was Isaac Asimov. I knew him before he, he died. He wrote 400 books. Isaac woke up every morning, sat down at his desk at 6 o'clock, and was not allowed to leave the desk until 10. Four hours a day, every day, for 40 years, he wrote 400 books. It's not that hard. If you can type, you can write a book. Uh, what he did, though, was he sat alone and did the work. For me, uh, the restlessness is what I have to wrestle with. There's always something more interesting than doing the work always, especially with the web, there's always something out there that I need to check and respond to and react to and some productive little errand type thing I ought to take care of. And so when I'm serious about doing the work and I don't ship every single day, well, I do with my blog, but I don't do a major project every day, but I'm working on a major project, I force myself to encounter that restlessness and then after a while it goes away and the next thing you know, you're in it, and two hours have gone by. And I mean, in two hours, I can write uh, 
four chapters of a book if I'm not distracted. Anyone can. Yes, I think that's a wonderful approach. And one of the themes that I see running through all of your work, Seth, and I know part of your background in in school even, uh, both computer science but also philosophy. I see a, a lot of philosophy flowing through your work, and I love that part of it, that today being successful means being an artist, being remarkable. Just as we said, you, you had had such success with, the, with, the, with your book Purple Cow, which was about remarkable products and services where people would just immediately see them, experience them, and remark, wow, that's something unique and different. This is the same kind of idea with a linchpin uh, with your new book, that somebody is remarkable, indispensable, an artist, no longer a commodity. And to stand out now is really the only way to gain attention because that information that used to be power the, the knowledge that used to be power is so ubiquitous that now it's the creation over the commodity. It's what did you create that's new and different. And that's quite a shift. In, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I need to do, a mind, I need to do a mind reading trick right now. Uh, the people who are listening to you say that, their lizard brain is telling uh, them that you don't know what you're talking about. The lizard brain is telling them that that works fine for people who are successful. That works fine for people who have access to resources. That works fine for people who have a spouse that's more supportive. That works fine for people who don't have three kids under the age of 11. Whatever it is, the lizard brain has a 100 objections to what you just said. And here's what I've discovered. Having talked to, I think I'm probably friendly with six billionaires and a whole bunch of people who have run big companies and artists and movie makers. And when I talk to them, None of them say, yeah, I'm gifted. None of them say, yeah, I was born with the ability to do this. You know, you talk to Spike Lee. Uh, I did a thing with him. And Spike Lee does never, never says, yeah, I can see the world differently than everyone else. And, uh, you know, if movie hadn't been invented, I would have had him invent movies. That's not what happens. What Spike Lee did was he made a lot of bad student films until he made a pretty good student film until he made a great debut movie. And he just did it. He just shipped. He just used his credit cards, maxed them out, bought some film, and made a movie. And anyone could have done what Spike Lee did. And he's the first person to tell you that. And anyone could have done what any of these people have done. It is not something that you are born with. It is just something that you are relentlessly passionate about shipping. Right. And don't you, don't you think, um, Seth, that it begins with that belief that enables you to be relentless about it? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure where you get the belief from other than just deciding. And if I'm doing anything with this book is I'm laying the groundwork for students of history and sociology and our culture and our economy to look at the world as it is, uh, Prajna, and realize that they have no choice but to do it, that they have to make a commitment to do it, because if they don't, it's over. And when you say it's over, you're talking about their ability to be anything but but a cog in the system? Yeah, and that being a cog, you know, used to be okay. I mean, I grew up 
in Buffalo, New York, surrounded by my friend's parents, all of whom were cogs in the system, and they were having fine lives. Because you could be a cog in the system and make the equivalent of what someone today is making $80,000 a year. You could be a cog in the system and have health insurance and be a respected member of society. But we've now replaced those people with automated answering machines and uh, outsourced systems and lean organizations. I mean, we didn't invent the Internet just so everyone could watch Paris Hilton videos. One of the main things the Internet's doing is replacing the eager but replaceable middleman. Yes, um, I agree. And and yet, as you've described, the the market space is no longer really going to offer the cogs that much of a of a of a living as once they might have had if they weren't remarkable. So when you say that if they're not willing to make that decision to to commit to some kind of art, then their choices really are more limited than they ha- ever have been, don't you believe? Oh, sure. Let me give you a really simple example. Uh, seven years ago, only seven years ago, if you wanted to fly anywhere, you picked up the phone, you called the travel agent, told the travel agent where you wanted to go, and in return, she got 10% of what your flight cost, which was more money than the airline made on your flight. Well, the airlines looked at this and they said, Let's use the Internet and wipe these people out. And so now all these travel agents who are making really good livings and had an enjoyable life have disappeared. And the ones who are left, and I know two of them, are the exceptional ones, the ones who aren't just waiting for you to tell them where to go uh, and following instructions and typing stuff in that you could type in yourself, but actually the ones who connect with the person who's going on a trip and bring something to the interaction that they couldn't get on their own. And those people didn't lock into it. They didn't back into it. They did it on purpose. And when they were doing it 10 years ago, their colleagues laughed at them and said, why don't you just book more trips? And now they don't have any colleagues. They're the only ones left. Seth, don't you think this truly brings to even more of a crisis our educational system? Because at least in the U.S. and the Western world, the educational system is based on following instructions and coming up with the expected answers. And what we're describing, what you're describing, is the exact opposite. Exactly. I mean, if there's an if there's a opposite to don't get me started, I guess it's get me started. So you've just done it. Thank you very much. School was invented only 150 years ago, public school, and its only function when it was invented was to train people to work in the factory. It was funded and designed by factory owners to train people to do something very unnatural, to be compliant cogs in the system. Well, the lizard brain helped, and it's actually not that difficult to design a school filled with people using number two pencils, sitting in straight rows and following instructions. And so we have trained millions of people to do exactly what we don't need now. And that's the challenge, is we have to figure out how to homeschool our kids at the same time we're sending them to public school during the day, how to create a new system where we reward people who get a D, a passionate D, a D about making a difference as opposed to filling in the blanks, because we need more people like that, and we need fewer straight-A students who can tell me what I could find in Wikipedia for free. Exactly. So I'm assuming that your next book will at least touch on that. (laughs) I I have no next book. This is it. 
this is it for now. Okay. Well, um, I do think it it is so important to think about um, on the broader scale, not just what we're, what, what the educational system is focusing on now, which is measurability and accountability. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that we are so woefully behind in terms of uh, creativity and independent thought and being able to use your imagination to come up with something new rather than just to follow instructions. As you said, that is the short, uh, the short journey to not being able to have a job that will sustain you. Yeah, and I think that parents are afraid to look at school as it is because we're under so much stress and we're running around so much and we desperately want our kids to get into Harvard because we got brainwashed by that lie too. And it takes real guts to stand up and say, stop wasting my kid's day and instead uh, teach them to do something silly and challenge them to stand up and quote nonsense and push them to learn how to be made fun of. I mean, that's totally unnatural to us. But in fact, that's where success lies. Exactly. And another point I wanted to touch on with you, Seth, is that as we begin to move, hopefully, as more people begin to move into this realm of creating change rather than avoiding it or... or uh, uh, being afraid of it, but but to creating change, we must realize that that's disruptive. As uh, one of my other favorite writers says, Thomas More, he says, you know, creativity is an aggressive act. It it disrupts the status quo. And so, tell me what what you would recommend for those who are being a bit iconoclastic and and going out and speaking and going their own way and creating new things. You talk about the fact that powerful people and powerful organizations will not embrace you with open arms. What would you recommend then for those of us who are going our own way? How can we deal with the fact that the world isn't necessarily going to accept us and embrace us? Well, the number one objection people have to the writing I've been doing for the last five years is my boss won't let me. I'd love to do X, Y, or Z, but my boss won't let me. Well, of course your boss won't let you because you're saying to your boss, I'd like to do something wacky. If it doesn't work, you get the blame because you said I could. And if it does work, I'll take the credit, okay? Well, why would she say yes to that? Nobody gets their boss to let them. Nobody gets the bank to let them. No investor comes over to you and says, here's some money, no recourse, go, fool around, fail that all the people who are making a dent in the universe are doing it on their own and taking responsibility for their actions. They don't have, you don't have to do a giant thing. You don't have to reinvent coal smelting. All you have to do is a small thing, and then another small thing, and then another small thing, and most of them are free. If you're picking one that's too big for you, that's because the lizard brain has discovered that that's a good way to, to hide. If you say, well, I'm going to make this movie that's going to change everything, but I need $200 million like Avatar had. I'm just waiting to get the money. Well, no, you're actually hiding. That YouTube lets you put up a movie for free. Uh, That you can do most sorts of interactions with other human beings for free. That you can go down to the soup kitchen and work with homeless people for free. You don't need your boss's permission. Turn off the television. Save yourself 20 hours a week that you were wasting. Uh, stop checking your email so often. And ship. 
Yes. And even if the powerful people, quote unquote, the, the powerful organizations, which really translates into those who are invested in the status quo, correct? Well, that's what makes them powerful, right? Right. <laughs> and, and yet there are definitions, different, different definitions of power. I mean, truly what you're describing is people stepping into their own power in a way. Um, so maybe, maybe more than powerful established organizations, um, may be the ones least likely to embrace you. And yet, as you've shown and demonstrated so many times that there is a broader way in that, as you say, great ideas aren't anointed by, you know, from on a high. They spread through a groundswell of support. And so, is that the, the, kind of the counterbalance to the established, the powerful embracing your idea, but to start smaller, but build a tribe, build a groundswell of support. You know, the thing is we've been so brainwashed by teachers and parents into thinking that we need some sort of permission, and we don't. Very few people will stand up and tell you you don't need permission because the system thinks that will lead to chaos not going to lead to chaos because everyone else is scared to death. You're not because you're listening to this today. So you're at least halfway there. But just go. That if we look at how many people laughed at Apple Computer, how many people told Michael Dell when he was in his college dorm room that he'd never amount to anything, how many people uh, looked at uh, you know operas in English or uh, jazz that was written by a trumpeter and said, this will never amount to anything. It's everyone. There's this myth that you somehow audition for American Idol, you get picked, you're a hero, and you win. That's just not the way it works, ever, in any field. Yes, and I think, again, to begin, to go, as you said, to start, to consider everything as a draft, and to ship to share it and to continue to share it and to realize that it will improve as you as you go you begin to to get feedback you begin to uh, you begin to alter your creation and perhaps you do build a tribe perhaps you go in a different direction but you are creating your own path and that is the only way forward in this new globally networked economy Seth, thank you so much for being with us today. Any closing bits of wisdom to share with those who are listening on the call who so uh, who so respect your work and your guidance? I'm really optimistic. I'm optimistic about a lot of things. I'm particularly optimistic about the opportunity that's right here, right now. Uh, and... I'm believing that people are going to take advantage of the opportunity, and I hope we don't waste it. So if you're listening to me, I'm not asking you to do something big. I'm just asking you to do something important. I'm not asking you to do it in six months when it's ready. I'm asking you to do it today and right now. Because once you get in the habit of shipping, you're going to discover that it works. It doesn't work right away, and it doesn't work every time, but it works. And if that happens, then it will be worth writing a book. Beautiful, Seth. I encourage everyone to pick up Lynchpin. I am just uh, loving every word of it. And, Seth, people can find out more about Lynchpin, about you, at your website, 
sethgodin.com. That's S-E-T-H-G-O-D-I-N.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on Conscious Shift at Co-Creator Network. It was my pleasure. Have a good one. Okay, you too, Seth. Thank you. We are so pleased to welcome Ashita Gupta, co-founder of FearlessStories.com, the editor of Fearless Magazine that features the stories of how people overcome fear. And she and her co-founder, Clay Bear have an, a phenomenal site at fearlessstories.com where they are actually painting pictures and telling stories about how we can all become fear.less. I love it. Fear.less. Ashita, welcome and please just share with us what inspired you and Clay to start this visionary endeavor. Well, thank you so much for for having me on, first of all. I love what you guys are doing. Um, You know, Fearless, actually, you you announced it interestingly, fear.less. The whole idea is, you know, is not necessarily to simply become fearless, but to also start to fear less. So the actual title, fear.less, was a pun on on the word fearless. Um, And the idea basically came from my partner and I, we're in a program um, with Seth Godin, who is an entrepreneur and um, sort of thought leader in the marketing blogosphere. And we were in a program with him that was teaching us business and entrepreneurial skills. And within that, we decided to create Fearless, which was something meaningful that we wanted to put out to the world, um, resonating around this message of being fearless. So entrepreneurs and students and businessmen, and, you know, actors, every, everyone in the world is, you know, has some sort of fear. And fear is sort of a universal concept that I think, in a little way, we were trying to tackle. Um, as entrepreneurs, I know we face a tremendous amount of fear every day. You wonder, you know, is this venture going to fail? Is it going to succeed? Um, am I going to fulfill my potential? And you have that type of a fear, as well as people that have undergone really extreme experiences in their lives. So, Within the magazine, we interviewed people with uh, people that had, you know, endured September 11th, uh, people that had uh, been in the Rwandan genocide. I mean, real intense levels of fear in terms of survival. So our aim was to interview and talk to these people, um, from the entrepreneurs to the students to the survivors, and talk to them as openly and honestly as we could about fear. And the goal is not to sort of show all of these people that, oh, look, everyone has overcome their fears, but to really dig into how personally um, these people have lived with their fears, how they've moved through days where that were particularly fearful for them, um, moved through depression and grief and job loss, and, and sort of come out on the other end. And it's totally normal people, and at the same time, there's really successful people really well-known people in business and in the nonprofit world. So the idea was really to get a varied um, sort of group of people that that we could just talk to, honestly, about fear. And the response that we got was phenomenal. Um, everyone that we approached, we found, was more than willing and almost relieved to be able to share openly about, about their fears. 
um, from, you know, the, the top-level CEO who had, you know, fears of disappointing the rest of the company or, um, you know, meeting his potential to the student who left college and said, now what should I do with the rest of my life? Um, so it was really interesting and so inspiring to be able to talk with now over 60, 60 people we have we've interviewed and just be able to share with them their experiences. So I guess that was sort of the, you know, the, the large of it was that we wanted to bring out this concept of fear and have a global conversation of fear um, because it's not something we talk about, honestly. I mean, you guys are doing a great thing here by having these messages out loud and listening, you know, having listeners be able to hear these messages. And but on a day-to-day basis, no one goes around saying, hey, I'm fearful of this. Are you? Or, you know, let's talk openly about our fears. And I know coming from, like, an entrepreneurial background, it's so valuable to have like-minded people around you or to know that, hey, I'm not the only one going through this. Um, and I guess the honest answer is is because, you know, my partner and I were, were fearful ourselves. Um, as entrepreneurs, you wonder, you know, if things are going to work or um, you, you have this control over your own life and finances, and at the end of the day, it's all on you. I mean, we wanted to be able to know, um, you know, that this was something secure and stable, but you can never really know that. And so truth be told, uh, we were kind of fearful ourselves. And talking to all these people, um, despite being therapeutic, I mean, it just, it really allows that community sense um, and that sort of shared experience uh, in order to do what you want. Um, so that was, that's sort of the, the general idea behind it. Ashita, this is Mary Adams. And first of all, I want to thank you for this site. This is a fabulous opportunity for people to really get some insight and, and talk about overcoming and talking about, you know, moving beyond fear. One of the things that you hear very often through different books and speakers is that fear is our number one stopping point. It, it's what keeps us from going forward. It's what keeps us from having good relationships because those past experiences keep coming back. And so fear is an incredibly important topic in self-transformation. What have you seen in the people who have come and visited your site in the changes that they have made? In terms of listeners or readers? Yes. I'm sure that you've received some feedback as to the impact of this site. Absolutely. I mean, the feedback that we've gotten, which was surprising to us initially, uh, because you think with a topic like fear, people won't necessarily be open about it and won't come to you with personal stories. What we found and what readers have been telling us is, listen, it's an incredible relief to have an outlet like this out there that shows you that, A, it's okay to be fearful, and B, that you can actually move through that fear and be successful or come out triumphant after that. So readers send us emails all the time, and I'm, I feel privileged to be able to talk with people who say, even for a moment, that, listen, this reading this story helped me even through get through the day, if not accomplish a larger project or, you know, meet my life's goals. It really helped me in a moment of time when, my project was stagnated, or I was really scared to give this speech, or, you know, I I didn't even want to attend that party because I didn't feel like I fit in. I mean, fear, it 
permeates every level of of our existence. And it can be serious at times, and it can be, you know, sort of lighthearted at other times. But really what people have been saying is the fact that people are willing to share is wonderful. And the fact that there's stories of people showing us this is even better. Because the thing about it is, is that you can go back to the stories. Our goal is for this not to become something that you just visit once and then that's it. The goal is for this to become a resource. And I like to call it, you know, one of the tools in your toolbox. So, excuse me, that you can actually use the stories as tools in your daily life. And I know personally, the books that have made the biggest impact on me, the stories that I remember, the lessons that I've learned, I inevitably end up going back to them. Um, it's interesting, I interviewed uh, Susan Jeffers, who's the author of this book, Feel the Fear, Do It Anyway. And I have to say, she's the leader of, this, of the fearless movement. And all of her books that I've read in the past, there has not been one that I haven't gone back to, you know, a year later, three years later, six months later. And that's the idea of the story, is that no matter where you are, no matter where you start, if you start reading now or if you start reading in six months, it's that you, you'll be able to glean something in that moment. And I think that's what readers have been coming back to us and have been saying, is that the fact that it's there and it hasn't existed before and the fact that I can go back and reread when I'm feeling down or I'm feeling a little m more fearful, that to me speaks volumes. And that's the goal, is that don't just put it away, you know, use it and consistently use it and use it as inspiration or use it as something that will drive you forward or even just look at it as something that says, listen, even if I'm feeling this way right now, I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I know that I can get through this and really discover my own inner strength. And so I think that's one of the most, you know, I feel privileged to have readers say that to me because that's the goal of it. Well, it's such a brilliant concept and amazing that you were bold enough and brilliant enough, you and Clay Ishita, to share it. I'm not surprised that that uh, it, it, it this kind of inspiration cropped up in one of Seth Godin's uh, uh, gatherings. And and uh, as as uh, as many may know, you are also part of Seth's team. You are the head of Hoopla for uh -huh. Seth Godin. And those people who know Seth as such a, an amazing business writer, business blogger, marketing genius, thought leader, visionary, uh, the name head of Hoopla just sounds very um, Seth-like to me. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's interesting because we, we, uh, we also spoke with Seth on, uh, just earlier. And um, this idea of fear in his latest book, Lynchpin, the idea of, uh, that he talks about fear, this lizard brain we all have within us, that is um, this uh, automatic reaction that we have for survival uh, kicks in, and what we what we know though, as human beings, as evolved, hopefully evolving beings, is that we have a much higher brain that can say, you know what, that fear. Um, certainly, I'm feeling that that emotion, but that can just be information for me that I can react to, respond to, ignore, as I choose to. Once I recognize. That that's all it is. It's information for me to determine how valid it is. And so 
one of the most, I think, profound things that you've tapped into here, you and Clay, is, is as you expressed, the idea that fear is universal and that we so rarely have an opportunity to express it, to share it. And that in itself, that act of expression diffuses often so much of that pent-up fear, don't you find? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because if you think about fear as knowledge, if you think about triggers or what actually scares you or maybe the bad experiences that you've had in your life as knowledge to be added to the larger experience of your life, it's so useful. Um, we interviewed an entrepreneur named Danielle Laporte. She's got a great site um, all about, you know, it's, it's about overcoming fear. It's about entrepreneurship and marketing. And her interview was fantastic because what she says is, I don't just hold fear in my hands. I have to transform it. It's like clay almost. It's like um, silly putty. If you just leave it there, it becomes hardened into this mass. Whereas if you feel it and you touch it and you sort of try to transform it, it becomes something very, it doesn't become as intense. It doesn't become as scary. And you're able to really mold it into something useful in your life. And I thought that was an incredibly helpful analogy. And you also mentioned Lynchpin, excuse me, which is Seth's new book. And it's all about fear. It's all about overcoming that initial resistance that you mentioned, which is our instinct for survival. And, it, you know, it, the main thing that Seth does, and he's been an incredible encouragement to both Clay and I, and was one of the reasons he gave us the sort of motivation to start this, was that you have to just overcome that in quick cycles. So what he does to overcome that sensor is we'll do projects and we'll do um, things together that are pretty fearful or are adventurous or put us out of our comfort zone. But what we find is if we do them quickly, and if we don't focus so much on that sensor, we're able to ship. He calls it shipping, which is getting things out the door. So, so many times, you know, I waited three months even before putting this out. And the, the whole idea is, is that you do all this work and you have all these ideas, and then that sensor kicks in, that lizard brain, that just says, oh, my God, people will laugh at you, or, oh, my gosh, you'll fail, and, you know, no one will like this. And if you keep thinking in terms of that or you let that sensor get control, you're doomed. So, you know, we try to catch that right as we see it rearing its ugly head. We just, you know, try to lay that down as quickly as possible. And I think that's really part of the reason why Seth has had such great success. And I know why his book is going to resonate with a lot of people, because it really touches upon that concept and and overcoming the fear um, of getting creative projects out the door, of, you know, fulfilling your own potential, of just walking through life in a different way. And, you know, it, it's so interesting. Everyone that we've talked to has had a different way of sort of combating this resistance. And I use the word combat because, you know, it, it is. It's pretty warlike when you're dealing with these negative voices in your head, when you're dealing with these sort of forces that are there. There's really, you know, dark forces in your mind that are there to just make you not ship things out the door. You can call it the resistance. You can call it the lizard brain. You can call it all of these other things, but the idea is to recognize and have an awareness that it's there. And once you do have that awareness, it does lose a little bit of its power. And, you know, I'm the first person to say it takes practice. It's not something that 
it transforms in one night. Absolutely not. But having that awareness, having that understanding does allow you to take simple steps in processing that and in making slow and gradual transformations to ultimately get out of that mindset. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful point that you bring up, Julianne. Well, that's the key, right, is that the fear doesn't have to stop us. And as Mary said, it can be really the catalyst to self-transformation, to moving to a higher level. And what you're doing with the site FearlessStories.com and by sharing these phenomenal stories is that it is, um, it's amazing how we know that fear is universal. And it is amazing, though, how we'll try and tell ourselves we're the only ones who are afraid. And and so it is, as you said, a, an incredible relief to read not only stories of how, yes, other people have encountered fear. In fact, to find out everybody does, but then to find out as well that people moved through it and all the different ways and methods, as you said, that people move through it that may spark something within us. And as you said, as entrepreneurs as creators and we're all creators um you know to get our work out there to share what is in our hearts to share our art we must get past that initial fear and so these tools as you say these stories serve as tools not only expressing our own stories but reading other stories we can see ways to move through, to transmute, to to shape and 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 mold like clay, as you said, uh, that was such a brilliant metaphor that that uh, Danielle uh, was it Daniela Laporte used, um, and so it is fascinating that people can come read the stories more than once. Now, how are you inviting people to to this global dialogue in? In, in addition to featuring stories, how are you engaging people in dialogue on the site and through the site? Well, we currently have a blog up, and we have a blog editor, Matt, who um, who posts blog posts, and sometimes Clay and I hop on the blog as well. Um, and what we do is we also encourage reader stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. Reader stories. So we do reach out to our subscribers and to readers, and we have people just volunteer and say, hey, listen, this is my personal story, uh, you know, if you'd like to include it somehow, can you? And a lot of times we include it on the blog. And what we're doing, in fact, also, and you can think of like the chicken soup model, um, you know, the chicken soup books, uh, is, is feature reader stories because it's not just about the people that we're interviewing. It's absolutely about readers and about listeners and about everyone else online and in the world who, you know, who have access to this site who's willing to share their stories. It's an incredibly gutsy thing to be able to, as a reader, share your stories. And so I, you know, I have received emails where people have shared, and it's, it's humbling because people have been through a lot, and people have, in their own right, lessons and stories and tools to share. And I think that's so valuable, and I think that's so powerful. And Clay and I are actually moving in a direction of, absolutely including reader stories in future issues. So that's always encouraged. And anyone out there that wants to submit a story or a lesson or any tips or, or uh, you know, valuable insight, we are more than willing to, to check it out and, and absolutely open to it. 
so we do we do encourage that, and we encourage um, a dialogue on our blog as well. Wow, I you know, and I'm just loving reading these stories and all of the comments and everything within it. Um, and this is a wonderful place that people can come, you know, to to share and get that information. And also, people can subscribe to this magazine. Is that something that is sent to their email address? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone can subscribe. It's entirely free. So subscription, we never charge for subscription. And um, what you get in your email is we never email our subscribers, um, you know, quite often. We just update them with a newsletter, and then um, we send you a link to download the story from the actual Fearless Stories website. So you'll never actually receive the PDF in your inbox unless we decide to send. What we have done is sent early release stories. So we sent like one story or, uh, you know, another story once a month or something like that. But for the entire editions, you go online to fearlessstories.com and you can download it straight from there. But subscribers will receive um, an early alert to download it early as well as a newsletter with special tips and, and insight. So that's what subscribers receive. But you guys should subscribe. It's entirely free and um, use it as a resource. And, and that was the whole goal is to never, ever have people not have access to the information or to have some sort of um, model where people would have to pay. We want this information to be free, and on the Internet, information wants to be free anyway. And so we let it. We, we give entirely free access to all of the content, and, um, and I think that's really how it will spread and take hold, and people will send it to their friends and forward it to someone who needs to hear it, and that's what we want. And what are you? What is your future vision for FearlessStories.com? Well, for for the magazine, for Fearless Magazine, it's literally to become a global conversation about fear. And I think when Clay and I went into this, our only intention was to put something out there that a wasn't out there already, and b could be a resource for people. So ultimately, we would really like to feature, you know, readers as well as the people that we currently have who are leaders and innovators in their industries and be able to create an open, honest dialogue through this platform, through a digital magazine. And it's interesting because digital publishing is also, you know, this is sort of the forefront of digital publishing as well. And it's a unique market with, um, with sort of this, this topic of fear and overcoming fear as well as combining uh, a digital model which is innovative and, and, you know, people are quite unfamiliar with it at this point in time. So I think it's to be that. I think it's to be the global conversation for where fear exists online. Well, I think it's that and much more, Ishita. Uh, So applaud you and Clay for this vision and for all of these ideas that we can all get in community, in dialogue, uh, acknowledging our fear, but learning from it and learning from one another how to get past it and truly get our messages out there, get our work out there to ship, to uh, to be adventurous and let that inner strength shine through. And so these are just remarkable stories. And, and uh, again, the site is fearlessstories.com, Ashita. And are, are there other sites or other ways that people can connect with you and Clay? Yeah, on our website, there's um, a contact page. Our, our main contact is through fearlessstories.com, but you can email Clay or myself anytime. 
Um, my email is uh, ishita at fearlessstories.com. It's I, S as in Sam, H, I, T as in Tom, A, at fearlessstories.com. And we always want to hear from you guys. We are always open and totally available for, uh, you know, if you guys email us, we'll get back to you. So anytime um, Clay and I and our editor, Matt, is also available, um, that's, that's mainly the, the, the way to contact us as well. Well, we definitely want to shine a light on you, uh, these, these remarkable stories about people overcoming their fear. And Ishita, please uh, come and visit us again on Conscious Shift. We really do want to, to share your work and uh, perhaps feature you and Clay uh, at a later time. Thank you so much for being on Conscious Shift with us today. Oh, well, thank you, guys. It's so important and valuable for us as well to, to be involved with the community and people like you. So thank you for what you guys are doing. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ashita. Okay. All right. Bye, guys. Welcome back to Conscious Shift. We are so pleased to be able to share the amazing work of Ishita Gupta and Clay Bear and their site, fearlessstories.com. And Mary, you know, we encounter every day the power of sharing stories and especially the inspirational power of sharing overcoming stories, how we faced our fears and came out triumphant and you know it's part of my greatest greatest enjoyment of the olympics in fact uh is that there are all these stories of how these athletes have gone through trials and and achieved and 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 worked so hard for years and overcome in many cases that not only their fears but maybe physical uh impediments to come out triumphant or just to participate is that something that resonates with you just as well, Mary? I know you've come through your own overcoming instances yourself. Well, it really does resonate with me for so many different reasons. First of all, I feel that the power of sharing is an amazing opportunity for healing because a lot of times we need to share. We need to get these stories out, especially when we are fearless, because sometimes we need the opportunity to celebrate that fearlessness and have somebody else say, you know what, you did do it. And so I think that's extremely powerful. The other thing is that, you know, this is the core of my work which is inner healing and transformation and overcoming. And for me, it has been an amazing experience, not only to share my stories, but to share some of the more intimate details of what I go through day by day as I am becoming able-bodied rather than disabled. And so... You know, and each time I am able to share my story of getting out of the wheelchair or how I took myself off 18 prescription medications, whatever it is, then I can go, yeah, you know what? Look where I'm at. Look what I've done. And that creates the next step for me. Well, Mary, I think one of the things that that truly inspires all of us in, in these overcomer stories is that especially when we see someone who has perhaps encountered a physical challenge, a physical limitation that we've never even experienced, then we start to get that, wait a minute, 
if they can overcome that, and that's something I've never even had to, to even think about, never even had to encounter, then what am I allowing to hold me back? It's probably just something in my own mind, right? It's something that I don't even have to allow to hold me back. Well, and Julianne, you know, something that I'm realizing through our experience of getting to connect with all of these amazing people through Co-Creator Network and, and the work that we all do is that we all have things that we are fearful of. We all have stumbling blocks and we all make mistakes and do things that we regret. And it's really getting to the point where you can not only accept where you are, but really step beyond and take the opportunity to get rid of that fear you know i i know for myself fear has been my greatest challenge my whole life and as i am becoming power woman in my own life it feels so good to not live that way and and to acknowledge that i think is really the first step well i think so mary and one of the key things to recognize is that when we're tied up in fear when we're locked in that space that is so much of our energy and our power that is, is stagnant. It's not flowing. And the amazing energy that begins to flow through us, and I'm sure you felt this, Marion can speak to it, the amazing energy and joy that's released when we counter that voice of judgment, that fear, whatever it is speaking up for each of us and call it out for the false voice that it is trying to hold us back. And even just as, as Ashita said, just to acknowledge it and diffuse it in a way just by saying, you know what? You're just information for me. Even this strong energy emotion that I'm feeling that, that yes, it feels like fear. You're just information for me. And you may not even be valid. We take the teeth out of that, that monster. And then when we really begin to move into that flow of the energy that comes forth, we begin to sense we have the potential to fly. Well, absolutely. And, you know, it's so exciting for me, Julianne, because as we get to have the opportunity to work with all of these people, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter, listeners, hosts, speakers, guests, you know, there is a big transformation happening. And as we start stepping beyond that fear, I am seeing things change across the planet. And I think that's really the incredible thing about the time period that we're in, whether you call it the awakening movement or the consciousness movement, we are waking up and stepping beyond those limitations that used to hold us back. Well, Mary, it is, it is an amazing time. In fact, this whole show has spoken to that, hasn't it? With, Seth Godin really talking about his new work, and he really is someone who sees the trends and senses what's next. And in this global networked economy, truly, we must become less fearful. We must be able to step forward in our creative power through those fears of whatever they are for us, whether it's, it's being it's being made fun of or our work not being accepted. You know, our work is valid. Our work is valuable just because we're unique, creative beings in the world, first of all. And as we begin to share that work and step out past that fear, that's the only way that we can start to shine that light that is ours to shine. And we become 
more powerful when we step into that, when we, we step into that energy. Mary, how does that feel for you to step out of that fear and into that flow of healing energy? Well, you know, I, what I do share with people is once I had the realization um, that I really had to take charge of my own health, I was in the process of dying. I had a lot of different physical things going on. And there was a moment in time, which was April 15th, 2005, where I said, okay, something's got to shift. And it was very frightening um, to not only take some responsibility for where I was and what was going on in my life, but also to get real, get down to basics. Where was I and what was I doing? But as soon as I took that first step, it was so empowering. And, you know, as I've shared with many of of our listeners and people, you know, one of the first things I did was went out and bought myself a Supergirl t-shirt. And I wore that t-shirt, you know, every single day. It was stinky and nasty. And, but I would get (laughs) up and I would wiggle a toe at a time. I would start moving my hands. I would push myself out of the wheelchair. I started learning how to take care of myself, you know, from very little pieces. And I knew that it was going to be a long process. And I, and I was okay with that. Um, and, and the one thing that I learned, I think, out of all of this that was the best lesson, Julianne, is that regardless of what is going on in my life or with my physical body, I'm here. I woke up again. I get to have another day. What a gift. Well, it is. It it, it really is. And what you're touching on, Mary, is that sacred sense, that holy sense of being alive and how precious this life is and that this is a life for all of us. It's a life in process. It is a world in process and that we are the creators We're creating our lives with our choices and our world together with our choices. And so, Mary, your choice, your decision to step up, literally, and not only just figuratively, but step up, stand up, wiggle that toe, fight through that fear, and and really remind yourself that 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 super supernatural divine spark was within you that supergirl t-shirt i just love that as an image and it it was a symbol that reminded you every day as you began each step takes me further forward well and you know and julianne one of the things that i did um in 2004 is I got very proactive and realized I needed some help. So I joined Al-Anon, which uh, was an incredible program for me. And at the time, my life was so screwed up, no one would sponsor me. Not one person would sponsor me. So I went through the 12-step program in about four months and really worked the steps hard. And for me, that was one of the first realizations. And I had spent from the year 2000 to 2005, I had spent a lot of time reading and, you know, because I had a lot of time on my hands in bed. So it was, it was really amazing for me, not only to get real about my own experience, but also to learn that sometimes it's moment by moment that we are conquering our fear or our anxiety or our anger or our resentments or whatever it is that we're holding on to. And sometimes it's day by day. And 
you know, having patience with ourselves because I did not land in that situation just because I landed in that situation a lot of because of my thinking and how I was treating myself and that needed to change. And so it took just as long for me to really come back out of that. And so it is a moment by moment, day by day opportunity. Well, absolutely, Mary. And that's something I think we all need to remember and hear deeply is that Truly, it is a step-by-step, moment-by-moment choice. And actually, that is the key to our power. Tapping into our creative powers that in every moment, we do have that choice. We can choose something other than what already exists for us. We can choose to step in into what can be for us. And it is a moment-by-moment exhilarating process. And so um, what I want to do now... I think we're getting some live callers, Mary. In fact, I think we actually have Ashita here with us live. Ashita Gupta, the the uh, editor of Fearless Magazine, and we're we're going to take some live calls now. Ashita, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you guys. Great. Can you hear me? I can hear you beautifully, and uh, it was it's been such a joy to share your message, uh, your work with Clay, uh, FearlessStories.com, and also. Seth's work about overcoming fear, and Mary and I are so excited to have you back to take uh, just a moment to to share a few more thoughts about becoming less fearful. That idea of fear dot less, and 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 really stepping into our own power to choose to take information, take fear as information, and and move past it to create what we truly want to create. And we've actually got some live callers, I think, um, lined up. But first, Ashita, um, tell us what it's been like for you, because we're all entrepreneurs. What is it like in stepping into entrepreneurship? I think that is such a creative endeavor for all of us. It truly is sharing our light and work with the world. In what ways have you been fearless in your entrepreneurial journey? Uh. That is a huge question um, with, I guess, an uh, equally huge answer. Um, entrepreneurship is scary, and I think you touched upon it, is that so much of, of what we do as entrepreneurs, and I only feel comfortable now saying that, um, is that we put ourselves out there, and that can be incredibly hard and incredibly difficult. And I think uh, with that comes a lot of fear. But for me personally, uh, learning something new is always pretty challenging and always pretty scary. And I think the largest lesson that I've learned for myself, and it's a lesson that I think applies in all aspects of my life, is learning to, uh, like your previous caller who I was just listening to, learning to take it moment by moment and learning to understand that you can handle things. And it's interesting. So, So many of us start out not knowing where to start. Um, I classify myself in that category. And just sort of being overwhelmed with the wonderfulness of an idea and how to actually translate that into something tangible, into something meaningful, into something that other people will resonate with. Uh, So for me and myself and my partner, actually, Clay, for both of us, it was like, you know, we have this this thing that I think is really meaningful. So how do we actually have it have legs? How do we actually uh, make it so that it resonates with others? How do we make it um, into an actual sort of functioning business? So that was pretty challenging and that was pretty scary. Um, but we found that in acting, in 
taking action, which is a large part of what I've discovered um, as a solution to fear, in taking action, in talking with people, in actually moving forward with the magazine, is that things open up for you and people have been more than willing and more than generous to talk openly about their fears and their mistakes and their failures. And quite honestly, it's a relief for people to be honest about it because it's not something that we talk about with each other off and on. We do on wonderful shows like this and we do with our close friends, but you know, it's, it's not something that people are embarrassed or they're shy or they're afraid and that's perfectly natural. And I think what we're trying to encourage is being open and being honest about it. So yeah, entrepreneurship is a trip. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, I think I'm sure I'll encourage, uh, I'm sorry, encounter a lot of different challenges along the way. Um, but you know, I think also slowly and slowly you just learn that you can do things and you can handle things that come your way. That's been the biggest thing personally. Ashita, I just love that. You know, entrepreneurship is a trip for <laughs> sure. And, and you know, there's, there's actually some wisdom in that it is, as we said, a process, a journey. And the beautiful thing about it is, um, in my work, a lot of what we talk about is, you know, when we're on a journey and we're, as you said, so many of us thinking, gosh, I don't know where to start. Number one is that you can start from wherever you are. The journey starts from wherever you are. And the key is that the first question is not, what do I do now? It's, what do I want to create? Right. Where, where am I going? Right. And that's the shift, that very first shift to say, where do we want to be? What do we want to create that shifts us out of the realm of what is into the realm of what can be that shifts you into that, that amazing realm of possibility of this beautiful, meaningful creation that you're here to share. And out of that vision come the next steps. And then the second thing is to Actually put your foot out on that path. (laughs) Start acting into it. Start walking that path because things open up every step along the way, as you've said. And so it's such a, it is, it's, it's a, it's a frightening journey. And yet it's the most beautiful, fulfilling journey that we can take. And um, Mary, I think we've actually got another caller to welcome into this conversation who actually as many do uh, on Ashita's site, can share with us her own story. Yes, we have Hillary. Hillary, are you with us? I am with you. Can you hear me okay? Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Hi, <laughs> Hillary. Hi. Hello? Hi there. So, Hillary. I'm still on. <laughs> we would love for you to share your fearless story with us today here at Co-Creator. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's, um, you know, it's, again, an honor, and I, I just believe so much that our stories is, are how we inspire and, and make a difference. They're our foundation uh, to our growth, our transformation. So, uh, so I'm so thrilled, thrilled to, to be able to share with you. Uh, so for me, it started, gosh, it's been, tra- it's been the fearless story, I think, since being a child, uh, being uh, parents getting divorced at a young age and, and having to go from having a silver spoon in my mouth and it being taken away to 
being surrounded by drug dealers and uh, having my my home being a bit of a battleground uh, of physical abuse, um, emotional abuse, and and really very little places to go. that, that later led me um, to losing uh, my mother of cancer when I was a teenager uh, and, and having to choose her casket at 18. It was, it was really, really painful. Um, and, uh, we just came up, I guess, on the 18-year, uh, almost 19 years of her passing. Uh, and I just had to keep going. You know, it was just moving from Philadelphia to New York and working in the fashion industry. I, you know, I basically... Uh, being fearless and built a mansion on a swamp, uh, mm. I looked great working at Prada, but inside I was crumbling because I had no tools to really understand how to, to, you know, I was just in survival mode, so I was fearless in everything I did. And then the gift that came was a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And it was frightening because it was literally something that I figured, like, what am I going to be able to do? This is you know, really felt like I had no control over it. Uh, and it was in a doctor's office because it was about a year of struggling and, and just trying to understand, you know, what did I do wrong for this, you know? Mm. Um, and what happened is that there was one moment where my fearlessness, I could feel it. I could feel the power in the voice inside of me through this moment of adversity um, and really get to the foundation, you know, of myself, which is so much of what yoga has done for me is find my foundation. And uh, they wanted to give me a, uh, what is it called, a spinal tap. And they said, 99% you have MS or you're diagnosed with MS. Uh, And I said, do you want to do a spinal tap for 1%? And I looked at the doctor and I was like, are you? And I said some not nice things. And I roared because I was at this moment of, um, like, I was afraid, but then I was like, absolutely not. And I shifted at that moment. It was such a gift uh, that I shifted. And I just, from then that moment, it tripped up all the years that I have been doing the work that I'm doing. Alternatively, today, living symptom and medication free by using yoga. Um, I even have a yoga DVD called Yoga Foundations with Hilary Rubin that helps people to to use it as a healing tool uh, and uh, a whole bit of work that I've done because I believe that it is really important uh, to to know that we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> uh, and, and it's scary. You know, I have my moments of still, you know, fear. Fear is good, as, as I, I believe, because if, you know, a plane starts crashing on the ground, I want to run. <laughs> but being afraid of you know, some of these adversities that happen to us, it's just we have to take those moments to, I find, I have to take the moment to just go, okay, <laughs> what can I do here? How can I grow here? What, what, is, what is asking me to, like, what part of me needs to grow uh, is really what I look at it as. Uh, but I, so that's kind of my story, <laughs> a little bit of um, how I, uh, overcame a, a life of it, and I think, all about I, think, that. <laughs> I think what I've just heard from you, Hillary, is that not only is it so important that you have moved sort of through these challenges and are still uh, encountering that, 
but when you were talking, something occurred to me when you said that you tried to figure out, you know, what you did wrong. I think it's so critical and so wonderful that, you know, it's come to this realization that it's not something that perhaps you did wrong. I mean, so many times we try to find that judgment or we make it so that, is it wrong or what did I do to kind of deserve this? Um, and, and that was the beauty of what you said when I, when I heard you say that, is that it's not something that you did wrong necessarily. Precisely. You know, that's all of the work I've done, you know, on my website, HillaryRubin.com, and my story is that I went from what did I do wrong to embracing the situation. That's how I, I realized along the way with being physically abused and, you know, just all the stuff I went through, um, I had to embrace it because the more I pushed it away, because fear to me is, is an energy of pushing something away, right? Mm. It's, it's, you know, if, if an animal's afraid, that it's to keep something away from them. And then it just opened to me through meditation, through yoga. I was just like, and, and studying, you know, I had to, I mean, I'm a child of self-help book, blessing, right. you know, for the, you know, before everyone had conferences and tele- teleconferences and, you know, <laughs> cash cards and it became a huge business. But, you know, I lived in Brooklyn and gosh, I mean, Louise Hayes' books and Shakti Gawan's books and, you know, all these books, you know, um, Dan Millman. I mean, I just read these books and those were my teachers. And I was like, okay, there's someone else that's gone through this. They, they have, this makes more sense than what I think I know, you know, because I right. didn't have the understanding or the the maturity or the whatever refinement, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, so common. I mean, even even today I'll have moments I forget. Like, I'm like, what did I do? Because I just went through some really challenging stuff with uh, just personal, my husband being in the hospital, and I was afraid. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. where's the guidebook for me dealing with my husband, my husband and having mm-hmm. to talk about, like, you know, it just was, it just constantly being tested in the human experience and, and in physical embodiment. Um, yeah, so it's wild. <laughs> Hillary, just this is Julianne. So appreciate your courage. You know, courage means great heartedness, courage. Yes. And, yes. and uh, just for you to be here sharing the story of how you have come through, as you said, this constant you know, testing in human experience. What a beautiful way that you've expect, expressed it. And as Ashita pointed out, I think it's, it, it was a, a wonderful point, Ashita, what you said, that so often our first reaction then in the midst of the fear is to say, what did I do wrong? And, and blaming ourselves. And what comes to mind for me, Ashita and Hillary, is that that's just that voice of judgment that fear voice in another guise. That's just that same false voice telling us that we're less than, uh, that voice of judgment when we can instead step into our power. And it's so beautiful, Hillary, how you said it. When you acknowledge and even embrace that fear, your response then transformed into what part of me needs to grow through this. What does this tell me about how to move forward in growth and expansion? And I just love that, that your quest for those tools, the yoga, the self-help books, the meditation, 
put you back in touch with your own power in a way. Is that what you felt as you really went within and found your own way? Um, you know, I, I believe it did. I, 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 I do. Yeah. That's a great question because it was the saying no, right. Knowing that I had a power of saying no or yes to what treatments were coming up or, or the decisions I made, the power of choice was empowering. And then the book, what it did is it brought comfort and the, the empowerment came of, well, I'm part of a collective, you know, I'm part of other people who are, you know, I guess saying the things that I'm seeking and I'm as a seeker, which I'm a natural, I mean, I'm a continuous seeker. It's, oh, it will be done when I'm out of, you know, it'll be done when I no longer can physically pick up a book and I'm out of the body. Um, <laughs> is that I always am seeking better ways, and uh, it is for my empowerment. That's, that's, that's very true. It is. Thank you. And, and Hillary, you know, one other thing that I noted that you said was, um, and I love this too, it's such an insight to share, I think, with everyone who's listening, is that you acknowledge and recognize that the fear is pushing away something that you don't want, rather than choosing powerfully what you do want. Yeah. And also, I guess, pushing it away also attracts it, too. You know, in a weird way, if we talk the law of attraction, uh, but definitely um, the, the pushing away, it, it, just, it doesn't really go away. It's like it gets sticky. There's a lot of stickiness to that. Um, you know, it's like a, I don't know, whenever you have like a magnet or something, just gets, you can't open it. So, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I wanted to jump in here and ask Hillary a question. And, Hillary, I wanted to ask you what were some, maybe one of the powerful tools that you've used through your transformation of fearlessness? Um, my main foundation is my yoga foundation, uh, which is really about the yoga brought me back to myself. It gave me a way to heat my body, to cool the mind, to cool the judgment, to, to clear the space so I could connect to, to connect to who I am, essentially, you know, who I am within myself. So the yoga, for me, it's why I, I travel the world and I teach globally uh, as a transformational yoga expert, and I, I bring this to people who are looking for this transformation uh, because it is such a powerful tool. Uh, and, and that's why my DVD is Yoga Foundations, because I'm like, this is my, this is the one thing that allowed me to build everything on when everything crumbled. You know, everything crumbled, you know, that, because it was built on a swamp, um, which is the, the, you know, working on that whole idea of building a mansion on a swamp. It, it doesn't work. So, so my main core uh, really is the practice of yoga, the philosophy of yoga, the, the life, the, the understanding that we're all connected, uh, and, and so the mind-body connection and then really living it, uh, and authentically. I'm extremely transparent and real with everything that I do, and I, I just have to give back. That's probably the other thing would be is that I, I learned this, and I give back through my yoga teaching and my speaking and everything I do, my podcast. Uh, because I just like, I'm like, this works for me, just like the self-help books worked for me. Let me give back. <laughs> I, can't, I can't give back fast enough. I can't, the only way I can duplicate myself is by creating products and things, 
you know, it just is such a tool. So thank you for asking um, and, and reconnecting me to, to really what, what helps in my own way of being. So thank you. Well, and thank you, Hillary, for calling in today and sharing your fearless story. And I wanted to ask you, Ishita, we just have a couple minutes left here. So, you know, we've gotten to experience the power of sharing our fearless stories. How can people do this within their lives, you know, maybe within their own community, since they can't necessarily get on with us here at Co-Creator or, or on your website? How are other ways that they can do this? How to share with others about their fear? Yes. I, I think it's a matter of first understanding within ourselves what that actually means. A lot of time, fear, it's, it's, it's not something that lends itself necessarily to opening up right away. You know, I, I am a big fan of the phrase that fear doesn't allow space or it's not spacious for us. Um, so it's not something that we tend to talk about, but the biggest thing for me is to be able to first have the attitude shift of changing that in your mind and saying, yes, this is a universal thing. Probably what I'm feeling right now is something that someone else has felt or is feeling. And I'm going to try to either seek that person out or be open about my fears with, with someone around me, be it a loved one, be it a, a, a relative or a friend or even an acquaintance. And, uh, you know, the online world is powerful as well. And many of us take it for granted and think that, you know, there's just a lot of information out there. But there's a lot of different things that you can find um, online in terms of forums or in terms of just getting inspiration. A lot of the inspiration I derive is from finding books or people online. Um, I myself have an entire toolbox of uh, books that have helped me and sort of I absolutely recommend listening to audiobooks and audio tapes and I do that on my runs. I do it on the subway and it's just a constant reminder to ourselves of how we can keep ourselves in the mentality where we're open and where we're willing to share and seeking that out. I mean, if it's, if it's a minister or if it's a pastor or if it's just a second cousin that you feel comfortable with opening up, you know, it's a matter of finding the people that you feel are accessible and that you can open up to. I think changing that within yourself is the biggest way to ultimately change that and for you to, for you to allow, I'm sorry, to allow you to connect with other people. That at least personally, that was what it was for me. Yes, Ashita, and I think that finding that safe space, whether it's just with one other person or whether it is in a space like fearlessstories.com that you've created where all of us could go and share our stories and find community. I think that's the key, the finding the connection, that, that acknowledgement that, yes, we all encounter these fears and we all can overcome them and we can help one another. We can remind one another that, that, you know, of what's true within us is so much more powerful than the lies that, 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 that can trick us outside of ourselves because our power truly does come from within. And as we share ourselves, as we step on that path, Ashita, just as you have and Clay has in sharing your creations, we all step on that path and, and live into our potential. We've got to start living it. We've got to start acting into it. As, as Seth has said, we've got to start shipping. We've got to get it out there <laughs> in whatever way. Absolutely. Get, you know, I, I think instead of getting over the fear, a good, 
a good way that I look at it, and Seth is a huge advocate of it, is feel whatever you're feeling, you know, and Susan Jeffers has said this many times, feel the fear, do it anyway, and I think a, a big a big turning point is when you think about the goal or think about how you mentioned at the beginning, thinking about what you're creating as opposed to uh, thinking about how to create it or how to start it. You know, that's overwhelming. Instead, think about the people that you're trying to help or think about, you know, the goal of it or the outcome. That, for me, always brings me back to basics. I like to tell myself, go back to basics all the time because that's such a tool that allows you to just focus on what's important as opposed to the constant static that's going on in our brains that keeps us in that fear mentality. Ashita, I want to thank you today for joining us here on Conscious Shift. And I want to remind everybody of the website, www.fearlessstories.com. And I hope that you'll join us again. This is a fabulous conversation. Thank you. I always enjoy these times with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ashita. Thank you for sharing your light with the world. We are here today with our Humanity Team segment on Conscious Shift, and we have two very special guests and a very special announcement today. We have Jerry Harrington, who's with us each week as Global Director of Humanities Team Strategic Alliances and Communications, and Steve Farrell, one of the co-founders of the movement itself and the worldwide director of Humanities Team. Welcome, Jerry, and welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you, and it's great to be with you, Julianne. Absolutely. You know, I'm so excited to have both of you today, as, as every week, having this segment with Humanities Team. But this is a special week, and it's the beginning of, I think, a special phase of sharing Humanities Team's work in the world and kind of the culmination of one of your largest efforts, the Global Oneness Petition. And Steve, I would just, first of all, love to invite you in to share with and remind our listeners across the globe about what your work around oneness is, why it's so significant, and, and to share this wonderful announcement and why that's significant. Why don't you kick us off with that? Yes, thank you, Julianne. I'd be happy to do that. Well, uh, Humanities Team is a global grassroots spiritual movement, and our whole focus is awakening the world to oneness, to seeing the sacred and divine, beautiful essence that is in the universe, that is in each person, that is in, uh, in our planet Earth, that we are all one. That, that is the, the whole focus of Humanities Team. And we do have a petition that we've been circulating for uh, a little over a year now. It's called our Oneness Day Petition. And it invites people to uh, sign the petition that says we are all interrelated. We are all interconnected and interdependent. We are all one. Uh, and that our essence is love, that, uh, that we live in eternal life, and that we all hold the most incredible creative possibility. You can find that petition on our website if you go to www.humanitiesteam.org or .com. Of course, there's no apostrophe, just in a spell with a Y humanitiesteam.org or .com. And I think the third rotating banner that comes up, you'll see a picture of many of the uh, celebrity uh, authors and speakers that have signed the petition. Our founder, Neil Donald Walsh, uh, also Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Deepak Chopra, and many, many other wonderful uh, new spirituality authors and speakers who have signed the petition. 
We now have uh, just under 30,000 signatures, and we'll be taking the petition on uh, May 20th of this year to New York City, where over the lunch hour at, uh, on 1230 that day, May 20th, we'll meet with the president of the United Nations General Assembly, Ali Traki, and we'll present him with our petition that says that we are all one and that invites the United Nations to create a oneness day so that all around the earth, all over the world, in countries and cities and communities, that we, we, uh, we, we have these tangible demonstrations of oneness that we create on Oneness Day, where we look at each other and where we see the sacred and divine in each other, and we see this, uh, this beauty that is the earth, that is oneness, and that we're all a part of. Uh, so we're very excited about it. And uh, we invite people to sign our petition. And, and incidentally, we believe that uh, the United Nations invited us to come and uh, 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 to bring our petition this day to their president, Dolly Trekkie, because it, it is the one thing. Interestingly, we believe it's the one thing that really allows the United Nations to accomplish their mission, which is to create a world of peace and well-being. And, uh, you know, parents all over the world. Uh, I think go to bed each night and uh, and and say, you know, how how can we create a, a world of peace and well-being? How can we leave an earth to our children that they deserve? And uh, we in humanities team believe that there is one thing that really can heal the earth and that uh, can create that world of peace and well-being, and that's to see the sacred and divine essence in each other and in all of the earth. And uh, so. Uh, so that's what we've got, and we're incredibly excited about it. Well, Steve, it is a wonderful announcement that the date actually has been set with Humanities Team going to present the Oneness Petition on May the 20th to the UN. How exciting that is, and truly the significance of this is profound and transcendent, I think, Steve, and, and, and it's so perfect as always, for this to be part of what Conscious Shift and Co-Creator Network can help you share with the world. Because as we know, as you and I and Jerry know, and so many across the globe are becoming aware, we are all creators and co-creators. And we are already co-creating our world together through our choices, through our creative expressions in every moment. We have already created and co-created the world that we're living in now and yet so many are not consciously aware of that fact they think that you know perhaps that the world is operating independent of us and the truth of it is each choice that we make each creative expression that we share helps to create the the world the existence the experience that we all share we are all one and if we can step consciously into our creative power to create something greater, something more profound, more positive, with greater potential, as we know we all have, a world of peace, a world of well-being, and consciously create that together. How powerful can we truly be? And that's, that's at its heart what Humanities Team is signifying through this oneness effort, through this oneness petition, and even beyond that, because even presenting a oneness petition and having a oneness day at the UN is just part of the unfolding 
of this co-creation that is our planet, that is our existence, right? Yes, it is. Let me also just, I want to say something about Jerry Harrington, who's with us here. Uh, Jerry is the person in humanities team that, uh, that, that went to Ali Trachey's office, the president of the UN General Assembly, and invited the meeting between himself and the humanities team. He's the person that made this meeting happen. And uh, so, uh, you know, on this topic of co-creation, that, that we are all powerful beings, that we we can visualize it, we can see it, we can taste it, we can make it happen. Uh, Jerry made our meeting happen, and uh, all of us around the world are incredibly thrilled that, uh, you know, that we have this opportunity to bring our petition to, uh, to the president of the, the UN General Assembly. Jerry, will you please joyfully <laughs> share with us about uh, not only how this meeting came together or the efforts that you led and, and across humanities team across the globe that your uh, country coordinators and many others have led and also about the exciting news of you presenting and bringing in other global organizations to be part of this initiative and part of the events that will surround the May 20th presentation. Well, thank you. Uh, this I started doing this, well, we, we, the Humanities Teams Global Council, which is sort of the overarching executive committee that uh, makes decisions about uh, how Humanities Team will be, how, how we'll be demonstrating and expressing uh, the movement's mission uh, on, a, on a yearly basis and um, sort of making sort of like the, uh, almost like a board of directors for Humanities Team. This group uh, decided uh, in April of last year uh, in South Africa during our last meeting that we were going to go to the United Nations, and um, and I was since then uh, working out the details uh, of making this meeting happen. And it, it took a while, but uh, but as Steve said, um, I was able to uh, get in touch with uh, Trachey's office. I determined, by the way, that uh, it was more appropriate to reach out to Ali Trachey rather than um, Ban Ki Moon, who is uh, often seen as the, the voice of the United Nations. He is the uh, Secretary General, but, uh, but Trekki is overseeing the General Assembly, which is, in effect, the legislature of the United Nations, and they would be the ones who would actually be voting on creating this Oneness Day. Uh, the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is more like a president or uh, sort of a chief executive officer. So, uh, so Trekki's office, with, with the legislative aspect, is the part of the United Nations that was appropriate. And in any case, after uh, months of back and forth and uh, being in touch with different people and learning how the details work, uh, they finally, just a few weeks ago, actually, uh, gave us the okay. And they gave us the time, and they gave us uh, the date, and uh, they're actually very excited about this. And um, it is actually next week. Uh, a week from Thursday, on the 25th of February, I'm going to be uh, making a presentation to a United Nations committee. It's a committee of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations at the United Nations, specifically those non-governmental organizations that focus on spirituality, values, and global concerns. And I'm going to be speaking with this, uh, this committee, this international committee, at the United Nations next Thursday, the 25th, week from Thursday, to not only tell them what we're doing and explain to them so they can become aware of this, but also invite them to join us, to join in collaborating with us, so that when we go to the United Nations, 
in May, and even beyond that, uh, that there will be a broad, a broad groundswell of support from non-governmental organizations that are associated with the United Nations and beyond, so that when we go to the United Nations, it will be bigger than just humanity's team. It will be a movement of movements that is coming forward and calling on the United Nations to declare this annual Oneness Day. And the idea behind it is that the Oneness Day, which would be one particular day, and people would then demonstrate it and show it as Steve described, but that the idea would be that uh, perhaps then with the awareness that would be created, uh, that it could be demonstrated in other ways throughout the entire year. Just as on Earth Day, people are aware of, of the environment, yet that sort of thing has led to environmental changes, greater awareness on other days as well, so that people take care of recycling or whatever else uh, you know, throughout the year. Similarly, <clears throat> with oneness, people would begin to change how they are with each other all the time, not simply on that day, but throughout the year. And the day, though, would be a concentrated focus so that communities throughout the world and governments and corporations and individuals would be able to share and demonstrate uh, acts of oneness on that particular day so that they can then do it throughout the year. What a beautiful concept. What a, a tremendous opportunity. And how exciting, Jerry, for you to be going to speak to these non-governmental organizations, these, these international organizations around spirituality, values, global concerns. What a, a, a company, <laughs> a wonderful company uh, of kindred spirits, a kindred co-creative spirits from across the globe that you'll be sharing with. And then in addition, Jerry, you've spearheaded, and, and, and actually last week on our last week's show, we spoke with Anna Marie Peterse in, in South Africa, and there are efforts afoot to bring countries, even South Africa perhaps as a lead member UN country, to get behind this oneness petition. Can you speak about that for just a moment? Yes, that's very important. Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, the petition alone is just one part of the action that we're taking uh, to have the United Nations actually uh, decide to have a resolution that would then be voted on, sort of like a bill going through Congress. Uh, the, uh, it, it requires a government to say it supports it, and it is, in a, it is, in effect, taking over ownership of the idea of a Oneness Day, and so that it would then be able to, in effect, like be a bill that has a certain legislator behind it. Uh, this country, South Africa, uh, or perhaps others, but South Africa is in the lead right now, uh, would say that it supports it, and then it would work with other countries to gain enough votes so that when it comes before the General Assembly for a vote, <coughs> this would be voted on and presumably passed, and then the General Assembly would, uh, you know, would, would then declare this day, and then it would become a day. And, uh, and South Africa, due to Anna Marie's efforts, uh, has become <coughs> one of the leaders in this because... Uh, a, a key value in South African culture is the value of Ubuntu, which, which in effect is oneness. It is a recognition of, the, of, of that I am me because of who we all are. And uh, South Africa uh, is, she is working with the South African government to create uh, support for ha having a, an Ubuntu day that would then be a step toward uh, creation of a similar oneness day uh, throughout the world. It's just tremendous, and what a symbol that would be for a country like South Africa to be one of the lead countries, showing the way to oneness, given, given their history and the shift there 
uh, much more toward inclusion and oneness. And we are so excited, Jerry and Steve, both. We know that the activities that are going to surround May 20th uh, for uh, all of our listeners, people, all of the people across the globe who have signed the oneness petition, all of you who are going to sign it, there are going to be multiple opportunities for you to get involved, perhaps to come participate in activities surrounding uh, the May 20th UN visit there in New York City. And we are going to be, keep you apprised here on Conscious Shift each week. So, uh, Jerry and Steve, thanks so much for the update this week. And, and Jerry, we're so excited to share uh, the fruits of your efforts, uh, your visits, and your meetings going forward. And, Steve, we can't wait to share more and more as we move toward May the 20th about this tremendous effort to bring the world together. Okay, we look forward to it, Julianne, and it's great to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you both so much, and we will definitely keep everyone apprised and have Steve and Jerry back to tell us what is coming up next. Thanks again for being on Conscious Shift today. Our pleasure. Well, Mary, such a phenomenal truly powerful show today about with Seth Godin about how to step into our own artistry, our own greatness, and with Ishita Gupta and with Hillary, our wonderful calling guest, about how to move past our fears. And then rounding out with Humanities Team, this amazing announcement about how we can all be part of this global movement for oneness and co-creation and step into our roles as global thought leaders. I am so jazzed. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VTW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus